Welcome, listeners, to a realm where shadows dance and whispers echo. I'm your host, Rick Clifton, and this is Quills and Chills, the podcast that brings you face-to-face with the masterminds behind the macabre. In each episode, we journey into the minds of horror writers and filmmakers to uncover the secrets lurking within their tales of terror. From classic tales to modern nightmares, we'll traverse the corridors of the human psyche and unravel the threads of dread that keep us turning the pages or sitting out there in the dark. Welcome to Quills and Chills. Hello and welcome back to Quills and Chills. I'm Rick Clifton and today we are talking with author Clay McLeod Chapman, a horror drunk storytelling virtuoso, master idiot, according to the Time Out New York. And we're talking to him about his latest book, What Kind of Mother, which is available everywhere in the US now and coming to you very soon in the UK. Clay is an author and a playwright and a storyteller extraordinaire, and he has this rare ability to be able to transport us to another realm entirely. So fast, actually, that you barely know what's happening. And he manages to do this and keep you on the edge of your seat at the same time. So buckle up, listeners, because we're about to embark on a journey into the fascinating and twisted mind of none other than Clay McLeod Chapman, my new favorite author. (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll run with it. Before we get into the specifics of what kind of mother, though, I'd love to get to know a little bit about you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, what some of your favorite authors are, what some of your inspiration comes from? Just let us get to know you. Totally. Hey, everybody. (laughs) I'm Clay. I was born in Virginia, born in Roanoke, Blue Ridge, in the mountains, you know, kind of at the, the kind of toe of Virginia. If you think of like Virginia is like a little bit of a shoe. Like I was right there at the kind of tippy toe tip, maybe like the the middle toe. And I I lived there until I was like maybe six or so and then moved to Richmond. Lived there for most of my childhood, pretty much all of it. I skipped out of high school a a little bit early and moved down to North Carolina. So I'd be be curious to talk to you about that. But uh, I I was in Winston-Salem for a year. Which is exactly where I'm from. Actually, just a little bit north. Yeah. Where? So, which part? Mount Airy, North Carolina, which most oh, people know as Mayberry. So Yeah. I was there for school, but then I hoptailed up to New York, and that's kind of been home. You are actually a new author for me. So does all of your work sort of contain this Southern Gothic theme? Does it include a Southern element of sort? There's just so many triggers for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I mean, am I going to say that all my stuff is Southern Gothic-y stuff? I want it to be. I remember reading Flannery O'Connor for the first time. I mean, like, what is it? A good man is hard to find. You you come to Flannery in high school and it, it feels like, you know, you're taking your your medicine. But I just remember being really kind of blown away by that story and wanting to read more and finding her short stories and just being like, you know, shell-shocked. And that goes to Faulkner. I loved Southern Gothic because it it felt kind of of the world that was kind of simmering around me. Southern Gothic kind of purports to speak of the region and that 
the kind of land itself kind of takes on a characteristic or it, it becomes a character. It's, it has kind of speaks to the region in a way. I don't know. I just love characters who are so flawed, inherently <laughs> flawed, that it's like, you know, love them, hate them, you know, whether you identify with them or not. Like, I feel like there's a little bit more of a complexity to Southern characters because they're just, they wear their flaws on their sleeve a little bit more. And it's almost like they kind of identify by their flaws in a, a weird way. And the oral tradition growing up, storytelling was just always a part of the fabric of people. Like you just, everybody spins a yarn down here. <laughs> <laughs> You're spot on. As a lover of horror myself, I'm always kind of curious how people find this genre. It started for me at such a young age. I remember growing up, we had a family cemetery right? Uh, that was up in the up in the woods. And every weekend during the summer, we would go uh, camp out at the family cemetery. And we would tell ghost stories sitting around uh, the campfire, tell little ghost stories and scare the crap out of each other to the point where I couldn't sleep. But every Friday, I was right back there. Were the ghost stories themselves about family members who have... Sometimes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. See, that makes it feel all the more real. It's 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 one thing if it's like the the kind of tale of, you know, the the Willigans or, you know, Bigfoot or something like that, but it's something totally, totally different. When it roots it into the personal, the 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 kind of familial, that would freak the hell out of me. I'm kind of curious how you come to this genre and when you found it and when you knew this was gonna be something that you would take with you. I feel like I have five different answers. And 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 some of it is experiences like I do remember that like I went to a 4-H camp when I th when I was in the fifth grade here in Virginia and like we we did the you know sitting around the campfire and our our counselors kind of told us the you know a few ghost stories and I remember that specific experience that sensory experience of like there's the story that's being told to you by the person sitting in front of you but there's the experience of everything at your back. And I just remember that feeling of like my neck, like all the hairs on the back of my neck just sticking straight up because I'm hearing crickets, I'm hearing branches snapping. And like what was happening behind me was somehow kind of fused to the story itself being told where my imagination was kind of connecting the two. It was a formative experience because it made me realize that like, so much of what, you know, we talk about content and we talk about story. We talk about like, you know, the thing that we experience as an audience or as a reader, but like at the end of the day, it's what you as the audience member or the reader, and it's your imagination that clicks in and makes it something more of a sensory experience. Like you take the story home with you. Yeah, I just remember not being able to go to sleep because like I I took the story back with me and I couldn't let it go like I couldn't get it out of my head and oh, I just love that that feeling like it, it it happens so rarely but when it does it's seared into your consciousness for the rest of your life well that's interesting that you say you talk about uh bringing the experience with you because I think that was sort of my takeaway with uh with your book it brought back a lot for me 
Uh, yeah. So I think that's a perfect transition. I think we should just sort of dive in. So why don't you go ahead and give us just a, the obligatory brief overview of what kind of mother is about and what inspired you to write this particular story? The biggest elevator, the, the kind of Akram's razor elevator pitch is like, just imagine <laughs> a Nicholas Sparks novel just going right off the rails. It's a, a single mom named Maddie, who's making ends meet. She's scraping by. Like, she's she's kind of come home to her coastal Virginian Chesapeake Bay town, hometown, and she's making ends meet by, by reading palms. She's a palm reader. And she reconnects with kind of an old flame, someone from her past, someone she hasn't seen in years. His name's Henry. And, you know, Henry has this kind of own rugged, dark past. And, you know, he's a man of mystery. Maddie asks if he wants his palm read. And, you know, just as a, a lark that he does it. And boom, there's this, this moment, this kind of what can only be considered a, a bit of a supernatural psychic epiphany. You know, is Maddie really a psychic? You know, probably not. You know, never, never really kind of purported to be, but it leads the two of them down some very strange, twisted paths. I kind of want to tell you how I sort of came across the book and and yeah. my first night with it real quick. And again, I, I apologize if I'm coming off like a fanboy, but I'm kind of a fanboy. I, I can't even tell you how much I enjoyed this book, but uh, I was at a, a literary festival in Palm Springs and there was a bookstore that was one of the sponsors of this festival. So we decided to stop in on, on the last day. I go in and I'm about in the middle of the store and I look over and I see new arrivals and I see the horror thing and I see your book and it does kind of speak to me. It's like, you know, it's kind of sitting cover out and it's, and I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. I think it was, the, I don't know if it was the title or the colors or the or what, but something grabbed me, but I didn't pick it up right away. I went and I did a little lap around the store and I come back and I've got a couple books and I look over and it's still talking to me. So I was like, fuck it. And I just grabbed the book and uh, I bought it. I brought it home and I used to get all my books from publicists and you know people. So I have a bunch of books on my desk that like read these, right? So I put it with those books. It sits there for two or three days. And it just keeps talking to me. And I'm like, fine, I'll read it. And so I opened it up. And I, I'm not kidding when I tell you I probably read more than half this book the first night. It was one o'clock in the morning. And I had to be somewhere at eight. So I had to get up at like six. And I'm like, dude, you got to put this book down. you got to <laughs> put this book down. But I couldn't do it. It was just, it was, uh, it just pulled me in. And like I said, there were just so many amazing things. Uh, about it. So again, sorry if it's fanboying, but I, I really was blown away. Like I said, the first day I couldn't put it down. The book has been out for since what, September. So it's been, it's been a while now, but like the reactions that I've been kind of privy to positive, negative, or otherwise, like that it's that halfway point that you're speaking of that, like things start to change <laughs> it's so interesting because when i put it down was right after henry's story where we got the backstory a little bit and i'm, I'm not going to say too much i don't want to give too much away but it was right at that point before it made the turn uh -huh. and so when i picked it back up the next day i was like well what <laughs> well what <laughs> and you just said a couple times off the rails and that's exactly what it was but in such a good way i was like 
okay, I'm not expecting that. I was expecting it to go one way and you took me a hard left in a completely different yeah. direction. And yeah. I was like, I, I love it. I, I, <laughs> so I was, I was totally into it all the way yeah. to the end. That was great. There's that weird kind of contract that you make with readers. And if you kind of veer off course or kind of take them in a direction that they don't want to go, like it's like a, it's it's hard to let go of the book that we want to read versus the book that we are sometimes reading. And I feel like this book really kind of like takes you away from a certain comfort zone for better or for worse. I would equate it to, and I, I hate to do this, I don't mean to equate it to anything, but uh, I think about movies and movies that have done this. And there was a movie that did this very fairly recent, uh, Barbarian. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> and and it, it just took a, a hard left turn in the middle of the story. And I don't know. I mean, I loved Barbarian. I thought it was fantastic. I loved where I thought it was going one direction and then suddenly we're in a, and it was the same with your book. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just more of a fan of that than I realized. I feel like there's the psycho moment that we're all kind of privy to now where, you know, the spoilers for people who haven't seen Psycho yet. But like Vivian Lee, you know, is murdered at a, you know, almost a halfway point. And I remember as an audience member watching that, even as a kid, it is just so ingrained into your system that you watch these things, you read these things, and you make kind of blanket assumptions of like, this is the character I will follow. This is the story. This is the path that I'm being led down. And if it changes or shifts or or just pivots, like it and it becomes something totally different, it like there's a resistance. I think you're kind of pulled out of your kind of complacent audience mode. You're you're like forced to reckon with what's happening on screen. It is interesting how certain people kind of like are so resistant to change. <laughs> They're like, no, 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 I don't want like, don't, don't put me down this path. Don't, don't take me in that direction. I don't want to go in that direction. And, you know, The Walking Dead uh, is a great example of having done that as well, having uh, introduced you and made you fall in love with characters and then take them in a completely different direction that you'd expect. The title itself uh, sort of indicates or hints to this idea of motherhood. And so I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about that concept uh, and sort of Maddie's relationship with her own daughter uh, and without revealing too much where Maddie sort of ends up at the end of the story. The kind of dark secret of Henry's life, which is kind of expressed very kind of like within the first few pages of the book, his son Skylar went missing five years ago and nobody really knows what happened to Skylar. He's the kind of, you know, charity case that the this kind of small town kind of rallies around and either to protect him or to keep his secret secret or, you know, nobody wants to ask too, too many questions. But but Maddie starts kind of delving a little too deep, maybe. But Maddie's one of these characters that like, I you know, she's a single mother, like I said before, her daughter. Kendra is in her teens for the bulk of their life together. Like Maddie did all of the, the raising did it, did it herself, you know, and it, it's such a struggle and, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point where uh, the strain on their relationship is starting to really show 
particularly now that Kendra's biological father wants to kind of come back into the picture after, you know, near like almost one and a half decades, two decades of, of Maddie doing the child rearing all on her own. And, you know, it's funny because I personally in my life, I was raised by my mother. She did it all her own. Like I never met my father. So a lot of the kind of, the dynamics between Maddie and Kendra, I feel a certain personal kinship too, because that was my upbringing. I feel like with Maddie, it, you know, when you, you put so much of yourself into caring for someone else and raising someone else. And in essence, they say, I, I need a break or I want to go, I want to go live with dad or I want to try something new. The kind of like, we come to Maddie at a point where she's, you know, she's dealing with a breakup or a separation that like, she's trying really hard to be like, okay, you could do what you want to do. Like, I understand, like, if this is what you want to do and not kind of show that hurt to her child. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a strange kind of intersection for her where she's feeling as if she's been kind of kicked out of her own kind of parental role after having, been kind of forced to sacrifice so much of her own personal life and her own childhood. Cause I mean, she had her daughter when she was just a, a teen. I think that's a, that's a real thing that a lot of parents feel if they've, if they've had children young or kind of out of wedlock or kind of done everything on their own. Like it's, you kind of carry that, that family on your back. So yeah, I, I think that's kind of Maddie. And then to kind of circle back to the title, what kind of mother I think what kind of mother is a very user-friendly phrase where it can be a bit of a rhetorical question. It can be a bit of an accusation. It can be, it can, it can be a lot of different things depending on who says it and why. And I think that durability of definition is very elastic in both the, the real world and in the book. And, you know, Maddie as a mother kind of evolves throughout the course of the book, or maybe devolves, I don't know. But she kind of goes on a journey where she is forced to kind of ask what it what it means to raise a child. One of the through lines in this story is grief. I feel like that's sort of an underlying factor across the way. Let me ask you this. Do you have kids? Oh my God, I got two. <laughs> so for me as a reader, I felt like, wow, this man has tapped into something that I don't have kids. So I don't know that I could tap into that as much as you did, but I felt it when you were telling me Henry's story. And I'm just wondering how much of that did you tap into? And how do you maintain your own emotional balance when, when going there to a place like that? Ever since I had kids, I have two sons. What has been wonderful is that they've, they've brought a very kind of, complex range of emotions to my life <laughs> um but at the end of the day the world is so much scarier now now that i have kids in it um and it has bred such a level of like low-grade terror like i i basically start my day petrified of what's going to happen to my kids and i like that's that's just how i live life right now and um so with what kind of mother henry's storyline is basically my 
worst nightmare? Um, like what, what would be the worst thing to happen to a parent? Well, guess what? It's Henry's story. <laughs> and like, I just get to like relent all of that fear, all of that anxiety uh, into that, that storyline, that character. And it came from a true place in the sense that those are my personal fears. Very thankfully, luckily, none of what happened to Henry has happened to me, but I can't help but imagine the horror story of losing a child. Uh, you know, like the, that just is a, a form of anxiety that feels very palpable to me. And I needed a place to kind of relent it because it would be in my system, you know, just for the sheer fact that I have kids now and like I kiss them goodbye at the, you know, in the morning. And all I can think about is like, oh God, I just hope they make it through the day. Like the monsters that are out there in the the real world are just so terrifying. You know, when they come home, there's like just that moment of like, whew, we got through today. <laughs> so yeah, what kind of mother basically was my ability to kind of like, kind of let the dam break and just kind of pour it out all into one, one place. I would say it was done very effectively. Uh, it came through loud and clear. I think one of the most impactful ways of you doing that for me was how you changed the person and it felt more personal to me I, maybe that's why i connected to it a little more but it was uh, i thought it was very effective so to that point let me ask you this question what do you think was the most challenging aspect of writing this story maybe it's the the kind of contouring of it we've kind of mentioned that that kind of shift with the the midpoint but like the book was a lot longer i overextend and kind of bring in this kind of like raw slab of stuff of story and through kind of conversations and through the revision process we chisel it down to what it wants to be what it needs to be i have a bad habit of saying one thing three ways and it takes my editors to be like maybe one's enough maybe you don't need to repeat it a million times but we find the story together in the revision process. Great. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other characters in the book. And in particular, what I'm talking about are probably three characters that if you grew up where I did, and, and you did, uh, we we knew these three ladies, uh, right? Uh, at some point in our lives, we knew Millie May, and I call her Charlene. I, I don't care if her name is Charlene. I'm going with Charlene. So... <laughs> Do it. Do uh, it. <laughs> I could see them. I could envision them. I was like, I, I know these three women. I think some of the funniest lines I, I read in your book were, uh, you know, these three couldn't mind their own business if they were paid. That yeah. I cackled when I saw that. And oh, wait, the other favorite one, though, hold on, was uh, Charlene's bulletproof perm. We <laughs> all know what that is. <laughs> So yeah. it was just some really great uh, characterizations you did there with uh, with these three characters. I thought they were just very dear to my heart. Oh, man. That's amazing. Yeah, the, the farmer's market mafia, you know? <laughs> exactly. I don't love them. They're real people. And I would almost argue every farmer's market has them. Like their <laughs> own version of them, you know? One of my more memorable moments in the book is Girls' Night Out. Uh, yeah. And I don't want to give it away, but I am going to tell you, Girls Night Out is exactly why I don't swim in open water. 
I'm wondering, without giving away too much yourself, is there a, a pivotal moment or a favorite scene for you uh, in the book that readers should look forward to? There is a pivotal moment that revolves around jellyfish. When I wrote it, I was just like, oh, this is, I like this moment. And it, and it came kind of so organically where like I hadn't planned it. I wasn't thinking about it. And it just kind of like, poof, it was right there just popping up in my head. And I don't know, like there, there are these moments that like no one else will acknowledge it or recognize it or even think about it. But like, it's like that is the moment that feels like the book to me. Maybe it's a little bit more metaphorical or lyrical or, you know, just an image. But there's a, a, a particular beat that talks about kind of weeping jellyfish. And that that to me was like, this feels like what I want the book to feel like. To be about. Feel free to expand on it or we can move on, but uh, I feel like horror is often an allegory or even a mirror for life sometimes, right? So I'm kind of curious what message or experience you hope readers will take away uh, yeah. from this book and, or what kind of impacts or meaning you hope to leave them with. Parenting is tough. Parenting is hard. Every, every day, it's like, it's like you fail on some fundamental <laughs> level. In a weird way, parents are just systematically ruining their kids. Every like on a daily basis, it's like, oh, I, you know, it's it's like the micro choices we make, it's the smallest things. And you won't even know what it is until 20 years later when they're like, Dad, did you know? Remember when you said that thing at lunch that one day when I was eight? And I'll be like, I have no recollection of that <laughs> whatsoever. And they're like, Well, that was the day you change my <laughs> like it's like oh man i mean i'm being cheeky but i do think that like most parents that i'm aware of or maybe i should just say me this parent uh feels like i'm just ruining my kids on a on a daily basis and i don't mean to <laughs> and i don't want to but uh yeah, parenting parenting is hard. You know, we're all just trying to do the best we can and survive at the end of the day, but we just got to do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And uh, yeah, as as a parent, I, I guess I just wanted to kind of like exorcise a few of those um, anxieties and neuroses in the most horrific way possible. <laughs> Well, I can tell you this, as a kid who was also raised uh, by a single mother, she's 87, she's uh, number 13 of 15 brothers and sisters, and the last one standing of them all. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but we've had conversations where she's, you know, had to struggle when we were coming up to make ends meet, and we had to go without from time to time. And she would apologize for those things. I'm like, you know, I wouldn't trade a single day of my experience growing up. So I would offer that up. You, Sure, they may joke about it, but at the end of the road, <laughs> I, I, I venture to say they'll probably say the same thing. So God, I hope so. I, I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed. We're just trying to get by. We're just trying yeah. to like you know do the best we can, and to not hurt each other as much as possible. <laughs> right. 
All right. Well, let's change tones a little bit. I'm being mindful of the time here. I just want to wrap up with a couple more questions. Uh, other than horror, what are some of your other favorite genres? Or are you just 100% horror all the time? You know, you got to be like a, a student of the world, you know, like you need you need to read and experience as much outside your lane because I do feel like that kind of enriches your whatever it is that you're doing on your own path. So I mean, of of course, like I love to read spooky stuff and watch scary movies, and I I definitely imbibe my fair share. But I I just feel like there's so much more out there, nonfiction. Like I love reading books that that have nothing to do with the the kind of you know vampires or werewolves or zombies, and you know sometimes the the stuff that you read about the real world is is just as scary if not scarier <laughs> so i don't know horror horror seems to follow you whether you're reading you know your <laughs> times or you know the new stephen king novel my guilty pleasure is ya fiction i i don't know what it is i just can blast through it and no time can i put you in the spot i i'm really curious if there's one that you would recommend because i've been embarking upon you know, reading YA fiction because it is, it is, it goes down smooth. And I, and I feel like it's so deceptive, right? Like there, there's like a level of complexity to YA fiction that it feels like, oh, this is such a fast read. It's so simple. It's so quick, but they're dealing with emotions yep. writ large in a way that like, I, I think that like, I don't know if people give it as much credit as they want, or if I give it as much credit, credit as I should, but like, I, I think there's some the, the mechanics of YA fiction are deceptively simple, but but actually quite quite complex. I would recommend Robbie Couch is uh, an author that I'm onto right now. He's got uh, three books out, and his fourth one is coming, I think, this spring. Uh, but the second book of his was the one I think I'm most connected to. It's called Blaine for the Win. I really enjoyed it. Highly recommend it. I'll totally check that out. All right. What's next on the horizon for you? I, I kind of did a little bit of a dive through your uh, your bio, I guess, as it were. And it, I feel like you've got your hands on a lot of stuff. So I'm kind of curious what you're working on next. I will say 2024 and 2025 are looking like really good years. Like it's it's weird because this is the first year that I will. Ha I will I, I've kind of laid down track for. The next few years which is amazing these are phenomenal problems to have but uh you know there may be a little bit of ya in the future there, <laughs> there may be a new spooky adult book coming down the road you know i i get to do comics which is really exciting and 2024 is going to be a great year for a new creator-owned thing which i'm really excited for which hopefully i can announce in the in the next few months all right, last bonus question, not related to the book uh, or anything. Um, write a short horror story for me right now on the fly using only three random words. <laughs> Dad, I'm hungry. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that awesome. sends shivers down my spine. I don't know if it works for anybody else, but uh, there you go. <laughs> it probably would, might as well. 
Well, the book is called What Kind of Mother? It's available everywhere now uh, here in the U.S. and coming to shelves very soon in the U.K. uh, sometime in January. And as always, as we always like to say here, please go out and support your local bookstores. So, Clay, can you tell us where our audience can find you on social? I'm on the Instagrams. I'm still on the Twitters, trying the blue skies, the threads. The TikToks, the Facebooks. I mean, like, I, you know, until somebody says, like, hey, this is where everybody has to, (laughs) you know, swim. I think I'll just kind of flail in all of them. Um, There you go. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. I certainly hope this will not be our last conversation because uh, you are uh, officially in my uh, top five favorite. So, for sure. Let's do it again. Round two. (laughs) Round three. I'm down. Done. All right. All right, guys. Thank you. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Quills and Chills. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the mysterious and the haunted. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to support us by subscribing on your preferred podcast platform and leaving us a rating or review because your feedback helps keep those chills running down both our spines. And feel free to share the show with your favorite fellow horror enthusiasts. Also, if you guys have any spooky stories, strange encounters, or paranormal experiences of your own, I'd love to hear them. Reach out to me on social media or email me at quillsandchillspodcast at gmail.com. Who knows? Your story might end up on a very special episode. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I will see you back here next time on Quills and Chills. Bye, y'all.